Hey, new podcast alert. Uh, Jens Voigt is joining the Velo News team. He and Bobby Julik have a new podcast called Bobby and Jens, which is on the Velo News podcast feed right now. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you have already downloaded the first episode of Bobby and Jens, which is titled Headless Chickens, Second Wives, and the inaugural Shut Up Legs Award. We are psyched to have Jens aboard. Listeners of the podcast probably remember during the Tour de France last year that Jens was my co-host for three weeks of podcasting then. And uh, he and Bobby are teaming up to talk about, oh, old stuff from their careers, add some takes on what's going on in the world of cycling, and of course, to spin a few yarns to keep you all entertained. So it's called Bobby and Jens. It's on the Velo News podcast feed right now. Give it a listen and let us know what you think. Okay, let's get on with today's show. Welcome back to the Vell News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a very busy Tuesday morning here at the home offices. It's Columbia Week here on VeloNews.com, and we are telling lots of stories about Columbia and cycling, and this is all because of the cancellation of the Tour Columbia 2.1, the awesome race that last year we had our uh, contributor Rebecca Reza attend, and she told tales of just humongous crowds, tons of energy, really aggressive racing, and the Colombian athletes being treated like the superstars that they are. Unfortunately, that race is off this year due to COVID-19. And so we wanted to celebrate Colombian cycling. And so we have Columbia Week. We did this a couple weeks ago with Australia Week, but now it's Columbia Week. And we have just, we have great reporting about the stars of Colombian cycling. Um, the Ciclovia, which is where the streets of Bogota are shut down and anyone can go ride their bikes on Sundays. We have great stories around culture, around pro racing, about women's cycling. And uh, on today on the podcast, we just have a, a podcast that's dedicated to Colombian cycling. Uh, Andrew Hood is going to join me to talk about the last 10 or so years of Colombians starring in the world tour, this Generacion Uran, generation named after Rigoberto Uran. And then in the second half of the show, we have author Matt Rendell coming on the podcast. He has written extensively about Colombian cycling, and he has a new book out called Colombia es Pasión, how Colombia's young racing cyclists came of age. So really psyched to get to all the Colombian topics today. Um, well, if you hear some crying in the background, that uh, is what's going on at the home office today. Uh, listeners may take note. Um, this is uh, day number eight of like sub-zero temperatures here in Colorado. And so there's some cabin fever going on. I'm not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> during the pandemic, we were relying on the out of doors to keep us occupied and engaged because you can't go anywhere. But uh, when you can't go outside, it could get a little stuffy and a little cabin fevery at home with a toddler. So if there's more crying in the background, I apologize in advance. Anyway, let's get to Andrew Hood. Uh, Andrew, what's going on in your own uh, man cave there in Spain? Are you uh, are you dealing with some cabin fever of your own? Uh, I have to uh, share your misery. Uh, the worst thing here in uh, over here across the pond is that all the tapas bars are basically closed down, so no one can get the uh, the vino tinto and the uh, the tapas that kind of keep everybody sane and happy. And all that shut down with COVID. I mean, there's, you can actually the the terraces and the outside patios are still open, but it's you know the whole vibe. You know, there's a curfew at eight o'clock at night. You know, most people are just starting to go out then uh, at eight o'clock at night, and now everyone has to be home inside of lockdown. So everyone's going crazy. Everyone's ready to crack. Hopefully, spring vaccines. You know, the sun is shining on the horizon. We all hope. Yeah. So it was the outdoor thing that was the saving grace for us for the last month. You know, a few months. You can't go anywhere. Stuff shut down. But it was like, hey, we could take. Go to the park, you know, go run around. It's pretty nice out. But now if it's like six degrees out, you don't want to go to the park. The dog's angry. Baby's angry. And so we're just kind of cooped up here. Just like I said, kind of cranking the Raffi and like playing with games. And uh, there's some there's some serious uh, atrophy going on here. It's just cabin fever. So I know. I'm with you, man. Want to get back to it. Luckily, there's some bike racing to watch. We had uh, Tour de Provence go on this past weekend our very own james start was there that was exciting to watch Ivan sosa won the overall and uh, we got uae tour coming up which no journalists at the uae tour this year but there's going to be live broadcasts we're going to be covering all on on villainies.com so i'm excited to get back into the bike racing zone because at the very least like uh when it's four degrees outside i'll be able to like click on the uae tour 
and remember when I was there uh, a few years ago and it was hot, hot, hot. Yeah, it's, it's actually great to see racing. Uh, the Provence Tour last week and we had the Trois de Vesege, and then this weekend we got the Hardvar Tour and then going into the UAE Tour. And the racing's been spectacular. I think the UAE Tour is going to be very exciting. You have Chris Froome making his first appearance in the Israel Startup Nation jersey, Tade Pogachar, those two guys racing for the first time in a, in a stage race together since uh, I can't remember the last time they actually raced together because Froome wasn't at the tour. And then they actually did race at Liège last year. Uh, Froome abandoned, uh, you know, Pogachar was there. Uh, and then, um, you know, we'll have all the sprinters at the UAE tour. That's almost become like a world championships of the sprinters because uh, they're all there. They're all going to be there. And they're all going to be really fighting for those wins. So looking forward to that race next week. The luggage that I took to the UAE tour way back in 2019, I still sometimes like find sand in it. Like the sand of the UAE has followed me across years and uh, and continents. Um, it was it was cool. It was a cool experience. I you know I don't know if I would tell everyone to like you know book their travel to the UAE tour 2020 2022. You get cool access to the riders, but. Um, Yes, yeah, sort of a strange event. But hey, we're not talking about UAE Tour this week. We're talking all about Columbia Week. That's right. If you have gone on VeloNews.com, you've noticed that it's Columbia Week. We have dozens, do- hundreds, thousands. Now we have like, you know, 10 or 15 stories right now about uh, Colombian cycling stuff about Colombian cycling stars like Egan Bernal and Nairo Quintana. We have a great piece um, from Craig Bleakney about what it was like to go to the 2009 La Vuelta Colombia, where he was like robbed and there were landslides and controversy. It sounds like a real wild and woolly adventure that was. Yeah, it's been interesting, this this kind of arc of this story about Colombian cycling in the Renaissance. You know, you had the famous Escarabajo generation back in the 1980s into the early 1990s. You know, Luis Herrera, Fabio Parra, all those guys kind of really came across the first big Colombians to really make it big in Europe. And then, you know, Colombian cycling kind of went into uh, hibernation because – Cafe de Colombia, which was a big backer of the sport back in those days. They pulled out of the sport. The Colombia Tour, which was quite a big deal. European teams were coming across in those days, in the 1980s especially. Um, so there was kind of a bridge between Europe, the European teams, and Colombian cycling. And a lot of that shut down, really a part of it, some of the violence that happened in Colombia um, that really just kind of tore the country apart, really going in the 1980s and 1990s. And so the, you know, the story that came, comes out of Matt's book, which is quite a good read. I'm halfway through it right now, talks about all those historical roots and how it kind of brought us into this generation today. You know, we called it a uh, generacion Uran in a story we had yesterday about Rigoberto Uran. And he was kind of a child of that time in the 1990s. And he was really one of the first riders to come across in this new generation. That we've really seen blossom in the Peloton over the last 10 years. And, uh, you know, so me and Matt Rendell talk about that. And, and it, it has always been fun watching these Colombians racing today. Well, so that's what I wanted to talk to you about, Hoodie. You know, before we get to the Rendell conversation, I really wanted to talk to you about the last 10 to 12 years in the world tour with all of these Colombian stars, this new generation, this Generacion Uran that has blossomed, starting with, um, Rigoberto Uran and Nairo Quintana. And now we've seen, you know, Miguel Angel Lopez, Egan Bernal. I mean, there's 22 Colombians on nine world tour teams right now. And um, as you know, you have been covering the sport and what it was like for you covering the sport over the last 10 years and seeing these guys show up, you know, one at a time, two at a time, five at a time. And the impact that that had on world tour racing and the world tour racing market. So, you know, Let's go back in the time to if you go back in the time machine to like 2008, 2009, 2010, uh, when Uran is showing up, and, and, and tell me the story from your perspective of how you saw these guys show up and the roles that they had uh, in these world tour teams. Yeah, it's interesting. Uran has kind of taken on this kind of godfather, padrino role, uh, a mentor role, really for these younger riders coming across. Because Uran, you know, he came across when he was 19 years old. And people talk today about Remco and, and Pogacar winning these big races so young. And it's more commonplace today to see young riders doing well. But if you remember back in those days, you know, around 1920, he was, he's winning world tour races. And then when Nairo came across, you know, he famously won the Welta al Avenir in uh, 2010. And then Chavez won it the next year for the Colombian team. And these guys were very young too. They're, they're a part of that kind of class of 1990 that included the likes of uh, Sagan and Bardsay that kind of really 
reformed and you know really recast the Peloton over the past ten years. But you know, for the Colombians coming across, you know, Uran really was kind of a bridge between the two generations because he came across. You know, there still were a few guys around like. Uh, Victor Hugo Pena, who was the first Colombian to wear the yellow jersey. Uh, Santiago Botero, he was a uh, world time trial champion. Uh, you had Mauricio Soler, who was, uh, who was injured in 2011, but he was a king of the mountains jersey winner at the, at the tour one year. So those kinds of riders were already in Europe. But it really wasn't until Iran and then really this kind of new Nairo generation that really opened the floodgates around 2010, 11, 12, that the, the Peloton reopened their eyes to Colombian cycling. And there's a few other factors that were involved, but now every world tour team wants to have Colombians. I mean, look at, look at uh, team sky Enios. And I think they have six, five, six, seven riders from Latin American countries. Uh, all the agents are trolling the Peloton there. They're trying to find the next Nairo, the next Bernal. So it's really transformed the Peloton in the last 10 years. So excited to watch them race. But they've also really changed the way I think the teams think about Latin American riders and the development there and in Europe. Yeah, because I remember, you know, when I was at Vela News, my first go around, like uh, 2004 to 2009, there was Santi Botero. And yeah, Victor Hugo Pena and, and Botero was this great time trialist. And he was always kind of like dark horse for the Tour de France, maybe a top 10. And then Pena was, of course, Lance Armstrong domestique. But like, you know, we'd hear these stories of uh, Herrera and Pada and Colombia being this big giant of cycling. But in the, you know, in the mid aughts, Colombia just didn't really seem to be that strong. Um, I also remember there would be these like these national teams that would come over from Colombia and you'd like look at the race results at like La Flecha alone. It would be like, oh, and the Colombia national team. And there'd be a bunch of guys that you didn't really know about or you never really heard of. And now going back and looking at those results, you're like, oh, Daniel Martinez. Oh, okay. You know, we've, we've heard of those guys now. So I think what one of the interesting things here is that, you know, Colombian cycling – like cycling didn't go anywhere in Colombia. Like, yeah, the big race went away and there wasn't this bridge to Europe, but the, the sport stayed popular enough that there were really talented riders getting into the sport. They just didn't seem to have that pathway blazed for, you know, multiple Colombian riders to come over. I mean, I remember, I thought that Soler was going to be the guy to do it because I remember that watching that Tour de France it was like, 2009, 2010, where he was so dynamic in the climbs and won the KOM jersey and you were like, wow, this is a star in the making. And then it was like a couple head injuries and and he was out of the sport. But, you know, the power of Iran, I mean, you put it in the story, it's like when you have a rider like that who is successful, who then has the attitude like Iran, who wants to bring other guys over, you talk about him having this apartment in Pamplona and like every young, hungry Colombian cyclist coming over is like, that's like the first stop is you like sleep on Uran's couch for a while. He helps make some connections for you, introduces you to some agents, team directors, whatever. It's like you kind of need one of those types of people to like put the stake in the ground and create the channels. Um, I think the other interesting part about the channels being created is these agents. So, you know, Hoodie, I mean, you've talked to these agents, you've heard to team directors. Who are some of the guys who have really, you know, in addition to Iran, created these channels. I mean, Johnny Savio, I feel like he's been mining South America for its talent for, for years, for example. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Johnny Savio, of course, uh, has been uh, involved with Colombian and Venezuelan cycling for, for many, many years, dating back 20 years. And he's, he was always bringing over these young riders. And sometimes they would flame out and sometimes they'd, you know, uh, remember Jose Rujano, you know, way back in the day in the Giro, you know, he kind of, uh, you know, was a flash in the pan, but he, I think he was third one year in the Giro. He joined Quick Step and he had some other problems, but, you know, the, the innate talent was there. And I think it's, it's, it's funny now, I think actually Rujano's son is racing. Uh, I think he's 18 years old, maybe. Wow. And his dad, and his, and his, you know, I think he had the kid when he was quite young. So at the, at the recent race in Venezuela, actually Rujano and his son were both racing because I think he's only about 18 years older than his son. So he's only in his late thirties and his kid's almost uh, a pro. Um, but yeah, Savio is one of the guys, of course, he was the guy that uh, found Egon Bernal. And Savio uh, you know, always had his, uh, he was one of the few top teams that would always kind of bring these riders across. And, you know, Savio's play was like, hey, I'll bring you over. You might, we might race the Giro. I'm going to sign you to a five-year contract, maybe with some bonuses. And then if a big team comes along and wants to sign you, you know, I'll get some payback on that. And that's kind of how he operated because he really fed a lot of these young riders into the European system for many years. 
And then, of course, the agents now are really active over there, Quadro and some of the other Italian agents. And all the, all the major agents now are looking at uh, Giovanni Lombardi. All these guys are kind of have their, you know, he's uh, Gavidia's agent and he has a few other guys, uh, Lopez. And so they're always kind of watching, you know, for the, the GC sheets of these uh, junior races. Uh, and Zue, Subio and Zue from Movistar. And he, he brought Carapaz across. And uh, so there's always been this connection between Europe and a few key players. And now the cat's out of the bag. Everyone wants to have, I mean, Patchcliffe ever said, yeah, we want to have Colombian riders. Why? They're ambitious, they're hungry, and they want to win races. And uh, so it's a different cultural mindset too. I think it's one thing we get into a little bit, but talking with Matt Rendell uh, later on in the podcast is that, you know, their motivations are a little bit different than say somebody coming up through the European system or say in America or Australia where they're supported by the national team. And if it doesn't work out, you know, they can go back to university. Whereas a lot of, a lot of these riders are literally coming off a farm. Uh, you know, Nairo Quintana's backstory is amazing. You know, he lived uh, at altitude, high altitude. And, you know, it's a one-way street for those guys. You know, it's, that's their ticket out of, out of uh, that lifestyle. And their parents realize it's, it's, it's the best way for their, their kids to have a better life. So a lot, of, a lot of people are putting their kids on bikes because they want their kids to be the next Aegon Bernal. Yeah, I mean, you have this uh, Nairo Quintana profile on the site right now that talks about this amazing backstory, how he grew up on the side of this mountain. You know, he uh, had a 20-kilometer ride to school every day, which he would do on this rusty old mountain bike with flat pedals. He'd be wearing jeans and there'd be like groups of cyclists on road bikes from, you know, the local town who would be coming doing group rides and stuff like that. And there'd be this 12-year-old kid with a backpack on wearing jeans and flat pedals on this rusty mountain bike, and he never got dropped. He was able to to stay with them, and that was sort of the the first hint that oh my gosh, this twelve year old kid uh, is going to be something else, and he's going to be something special. I think one of the other interesting things that we've tapped into a reporting though is that these Colombian stars all have their individual personalities, all have their individual you know uh, regions that they they come from in Colombia, and that helps shape how the Colombian cycling fans view them. So Rigoberto Uran is this sort of you know, this celebrity who's very charismatic. He has this enormous social media following. He has stunning results, no doubt, but maybe, you know, he's not, he hasn't won the Tour de France like Egan Barnal or won the, won, even won a Grand Tour like Naira Quintana, yet he is this celebrity based mo- mostly off of his like force of nature and personality. Whereas Nairo and Egan Bernal tend to be a little different. I mean, how would you classify and describe the, the fame and the reputation that these big stars have in Colombia? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a rough sketch, pretty accurate. I think that uh, actually I've never gone to the Colombia tour. But my understanding is that they're all rock stars. I mean, the the cyclists in Colombia right now, they're as big as the big football soccer stars. Uh, in fact, probably bigger because right now there's a there's a handful of top soccer players playing in the European leagues. But, you know, 22 World Tour pros, you know, at the elite level of cycling. And cycling is a national sport. One thing that's interesting about Colombia, you know, we often talk about, you know, how do you develop a sport? You know, in America, there's no cycling clubs. Uh, but in Colombia, you do have every kind of town and region have these little peñas, these little cycling clubs for the junior riders. And that's where all those guys came out of. And they're all giving back. Uran started his own club, Bernal. You know, they're they're helping grow the next generation of cyclists right now. But yeah, I mean, Uran, I think he really is within uh, the Colombian uh, celebrity status. is probably the one that's gone more mainstream. You know, he's on all the chat shows. You know, he's going on Dances with Stars and stuff like that. He has his chain of, you know, has his own clothing business now, which has several stores across Colombia. So he's kind of gone more mainstream. He's more like the Mick Jagger. You know, he's kind of like one of these guys that is larger than the sport. Whereas Nairo is kind of more of this man of the of the people. You know, he represents a large sector, kind of the rural, uh, rural kind of population there in Colombia. And, uh, you know, he he – he really is the one I think that it, it identifies with the Colombian people as a cyclist. I mean, Egon Bernal was the first to win the Tour de France, but the way that Bernal, the way that, uh, that Quintana was welcomed after he won that Giro. I remember I was watching on a live feed way back in the day when when uh, Quintana won the Giro. God, what year was that? Like 2014 ish, maybe. And it was like I remember some live feed. I was up late at night, and you know, it was he landed at the airport in uh, Bogota 
And it was like the Denver Broncos winning the Super Bowl parade. I mean, by the time the whole entourage rolled out of the airport and all these, you know, it was just kind of the early days, you know, the iPhones were, you know, it was a lot easier to get online. And people were saying, hey, you know, uh, Nairo is here. And by the time you got downtown Bogota, it was like, uh, you know, the NASA uh, astronauts ticker tape parade in the downtown streets went to the presidential palace. And, you know, it's curious, like Bernal didn't want any of that. After he won the tour last year, he refused to even go to the president's palace. He didn't want all that hoopla around him. He had a small reception in his, small, his village, and he's very private. So very different. You're right. Very different kind of personality with all these guys. Yeah, watching the footage of that Nairo ticker tape parade, and even the big one, the reception he got after second place at the Tour de France in 2013, it reminded me of some of the um, footage from the really great documentary on Diego Maradona that came out last year. Did you see that one? Diego, I think the film is just called no. Diego Maradona, but they have all this great footage of Diego Maradona when he is, um, you, you know, walking around Naples and like everywhere he goes, it's just chaos and people hanging out of windows and like on rooftops and oh my God, Diego. And every Napoli home game, the entire city is lining the streets and standing on top of rooftops just to see his car go down and if he ever goes out to a restaurant or to a club it's just half the city is like surrounding the restaurant banging on the windows and trying to like get their photo with Diego Maradona and it's that that level of um, sports celebrity when matched with places where you know security and sort of the the the, the free-flowing society is a little different than you might have in the states it's just you know it's this recipe for um, some really interesting scenes. And, and that's what seeing Quintana in Colombia had reminded me of. Yeah, but all, all these guys are really big stars, you know, uh, Miguel Angel Lopez, Gaviria, you know, Gaviria, second guy in the yellow jersey. You know, he's, he's a big star back home. Uh, even even kind of like good kind of second tier pros, a guy like Wiener Anacona. Maybe you don't, people don't look at him very much, you know, in the – mainstream cycling media but he's a huge star back home as well and it's just really great to see colombian cycling they brought so much to the sport the way they're attacking all the time their style of racing is very dynamic and you know if you look at the you know this generation generacion uran very impressive you know kind of started with uran you know ends really with bernal winning the tour you know two years ago but man you look behind who's behind Bernal coming through. A lot of really young guys, you know, Aguita, Danny Martinez, and there's some other guys coming through even younger than those guys. And it's like, man, the Colombian and then Bernal, of course, is still very young. And if he comes back from his injury, uh, you know, he'll, he'll, he's going to be a force, of course, for the next ten years. So Colombian cycling, man, it's here to stay. And I, I, you know, I don't think it's a fluke. It's not like a one. It's not like just kind of a, a blip on the screen where. It was coincidentally a bunch of Colombians who are suddenly good and they're going to retire and go away. It's like, no, the pipeline's there. It's going to keep pumping. Well, we're going to continue covering all the Columbia storylines on uh, villainews.com. And again, this whole week is Columbia week. So check it out. We have some great stuff about the stars of Colombian cycling. But we have a bunch of great stories about some of the lesser known heroes, some stories about women's cycling. Uh, Hoodie, you did a great piece on Columbia's female BMX champion, two-time Olympic winner. Again, we have the stuff on Ciclovia. So we have a wide range of coverage of Columbia, Colombian cycling on the site right now. Um, Hoodie, thanks so much. Let's get to your chat with Matt Rendell about the history of Colombian uh, cycling and some of these other topics. All right. Thanks, Fred. Welcome to the Velo News Podcast. Today we have a very special guest in honor of our Columbia Week, all week here on VeloNews.com. We have uh, it would be, we would be um, remiss if we did not have our next guest, Matt Rendell, a uh, cycling journalist and author who's been involved in the sport for decades. Uh, I remember, I think I met you, Matt, like way back in the late 90s. We were doing some Tour de France guide in the basement of um, McQuaid's house somewhere in West London, I remember. I think when I met you the God, first time. isn't that the truth? <laughs> yeah, 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 mid-90s, mid-90s. That might have been the mid-90s, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Matt uh, is joining us today. He's written more than 10 books during his career, uh, uh, most famously for his uh, The Death of Marco Pantani, kind of the uh, the essential uh, Pantani biography written uh, more than 10 years ago. Still uh, kind of the uh, really captures the, the story, not only the backstory of Pantani as a superstar, but also the details of what happened. Also, he, he's written five books on Colombian cycling, King of the Mountains, and of course, his most recent book, Colombia es Pasión, 
the generation of right racing cyclists who changed their nation and the Tour de France. Welcome, Matt Rendell. Andy, it's great to be here, and thank you for having me. Well, great. Uh, you know, Matt, we wanted to have you on the show today because, you know, you're, you're so involved with the Colombian cycling. You've been going there. When was your first trip uh, to Colombia, and how did you first get, you personally get bitten by the Colombian cycling bug? I set off for Colombia on the 30th of November, 1997. That was the first time. And um, I'd been uh, translating and interpreting for the British Tour de France coverage, basically as a, as a linguist, as a translator, not as a journalist at all. And I remember I had to um, uh, translate an interview uh, that Paul Sherwin did with Chepe Gonzalez in 1997. And Chepe used an expression in Spanish, uh, which uh, was um, los pisos térmicos, los pisos térmicos. And I didn't know uh, what this meant. And I took about four hours to find out what it meant. Mm. And I phoned around all my Latin American friends and no one could tell me. And eventually I remembered, I'd, I'd lived in Paris for a spell. And I remembered that in Paris, there was a radio station called... Uh, Radio Latina, owned by Caracol, which is a Colombian radio station. And I thought, if I phone there, I will find a Colombian and maybe they can explain this to me. And I phoned uh, this, I found a number and I phoned them up and I spoke to the director and he was just lovely. And he explained pisos térmicos, which is, uh, I mean, eventually I translated it just saying um, at altitude. Mm. But it's the idea that... Um, um, at, at every given altitude, you have a certain type of vegetation and climate. And so the higher you get, if you're on the uh, equator like Colombia or Ecuador, the higher you go, the closer you get to sort of polar um, climate and vegetation. So as you go to the highest, the top of a mountain, and it's snow all year round and it's polar. And as you get down towards sea level, you get a more tropical Kind of, and, and 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 so in any case, this just having to translate this phrase that I couldn't understand brought me in touch with this wonderful kind of Colombian guy who said, "Listen, let me send you some music so that when a Colombian wins, you can play the right Colombian music." So he sent me DVD uh, CDs, mm. and I, I just thought I liked the sound of Chepe. He was, you know, saying, you know, mi Dios, gracias a Dios. He was very spiritual and so on, talking about cycling. And and then this guy that helped me out with the translation and sent me music. And I thought, wow, what a what a great bunch of people. And and the other thing, Andy, that I had that you don't get much in sport these days was when I was listening to the interview of Chepe that I was translating. I had the impression that I was listening to someone who came from a very great distance not just physically, but also in cultural terms. And that kind of stirred my curiosity because sport tends to flatten down the, 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 the wonderful differences that make between us that make life interesting. And I had this kind of obsession with, you know, the kind of helicopter shot, the aerial shot of the peloton, beautiful sunny day, beautiful landscape, green and the road. And then it's as if it's, covered with sort of sparkling shards of different colored uh, glass or, or sort of plastic or something, all, all different colors and sparkling. Mm. And each one of those riders contains a thought world, contains a universe. And is I think they're all doing something different. So, you know, the Colombians, when they're cycling, they're doing something that really has a lot to do with their spirituality, which we'll talk about in a moment. And maybe the, the Britons, when they're riding, it's got a lot to do with our empirical applied science tradition. And you see that a little bit with Team Sky and mm. Ineos and what they've done. And then, you know, for North Americans, it, it's about... It's all about winning. <laughs> ...and being free and getting out on the road and all that kind of stuff. And, and I'm sure for the Russians and for the... You know, for the Africans and for the Spaniards and the Italians and French, it, it, it's although they're doing, we're all doing the same thing, which is turning the pedals. But actually, there's something far more interesting and soulful going on inside, and that's kind of what I'm obsessed with, as you know. Yeah, very interesting, uh, Matt. You have such a unique perspective on on Colombian cycling and cycling in general. <laughs> um, you know, I've always been curious. You know, how did uh, cycling take root in Colombia? Because you know, historically, we saw. 
a country like Eritrea, the Italians brought cycling there. The Americans exported baseball, you know, to Japan and Dominican Republic and uh, Cuba. How did cycling take root? Was there some sort of historical link to the cycling community or was it something that just grew out from within Colombia? There was a certain amount of uh, migration uh, from Europe. Um, so there was uh, the family of a man who was the venue manager of the Parc des Princes in Paris uh, on behalf of Henri Desgranges, the founder of the Tour de France. Um, and he sent his eldest son um, during the First World War to Colombia. Now, I, I don't know what the family connection was, um, uh, but he began importing uh, bikes from uh, sp uh, from France, automoto bikes from France. Um, there was a guy called Donald Raskin, who was a Briton. He was a son of a tailor. He was sent to Colombia as a kind of refuge from the war as well. And he imported Dayton cycles from London. Um, and um, so, so industrially, there's that going on. And, and I think there's something... Um, very different going on, and that is that Colombia, unlike a lot of the other Latin American countries, uh, and, and the USA, of course, um, it didn't take in millions of migrants in the 19th and early 20th century. Mm. You know, I, I think something like between 1880 and 1930, you had about 55 million migrants crossing from Europe um, to the Americas, mm. most of them going to the USA, a lot going to Argentina, Brazil, other countries, Venezuela. Colombia didn't really uh, participate in that flow. And I think it left in Colombian sort of self-awareness this idea that we've somehow kind of been cut out of the great flow of world history. And that left an ambition to reconnect with you know the the, the international world the, the the international community and sport of course is a great way of doing that and you only have to look at the medals table of the olympic games and what you have there is a kind of you know list of the nations of the world in this sporting community so um so colombia wanted to integrate itself with the world and the first tour of colombia was in 1951 was uh, quite uh, um, uh, deliberately modelled on the Tour de France. And so there was already this outward-looking uh, idea that, you know, hey, look, this is what they do in Europe. We can do this here. And, of course, they've got the landscape to make great races. Um, and um, uh, But I think also it was... They say this about the first uh, Tour de France, that um, the map of the first Tour de France, published whenever it was, 1st of June 1903 or something, um, was for many French people, it was the first time they'd ever seen a map of France, mm. as it were, seen from above, seen sort of like from a satellite, and they call it the hexagon. And it was very important in, in, in imprinting on French people this idea that this is what our nation looks like, this is the shape of it, this is where the, the, the towns and cities are. And the first tour of Colombia did exactly the same thing. And for a lot of Colombians, they didn't really know the next village. And so it had this, it was nation building internally, and it was also making connections with the outside world. And in 1953, they sent a team to the uh, Route de France, which, which is now the Tour de l'Avenir, um, uh, because they'd had the 1948 Olympic gold medalist, José Béaire. He'd gone and migrated to Colombia, went there for a month, stayed there 50 years, became the national, won the Tour of Colombia in 1952, became a TV commentator and all sorts of other things, had an amazingly adventurous uh, life. And and so, yeah, it was a kind of way of connecting sort of nation building, the development of the country with um, the outside world. It really caught people's imagination. Yeah, it's such a such a storied history in cycling uh, in Colombia. Uh, I guess we can just fast forward to today's generation. That's yeah. what most of our readers are, are most familiar with. Uh, I think the one writer that stands out to me is Rigoberto Uran. He was kind mm -hmm. of a path path leader, pathfinder, really, of this newer generation coming in. Um, how how important was he to kind of bridge that between the Escarabajos? And then that kind of transitional generation of Victor Hugo Pena and Botero. How important was Urad? It seemed like 
Columbia and Cycling had been stalled a little bit. There weren't a lot of big riders. There weren't teams. There wasn't the backing. How important was Uran to kind of recreate that bridge to Europe? Yeah, I think it was very important. It was Marlon Perez was a pro who was uh, who was kind of more of a journeyman, really, and he um, he, he he rode with uh, Rigo when Rigo was young, and I think uh, he, he marked a kind of critical moment. He, he marked a before and after, and he built a, a bridge to Europe, really. And a lot of people uh, went and stayed in the house um, in in Pamplona um, that, that that he rented, and um, he became a kind of godfather for a lot of riders. Who went there after him, um, and of course, um, he is a product of the violence of Colombia, and that's uh, a story that's um, I, I, I tell at, at some length in the in the book. I know uh, Urao, the town that he's from, very well. I've got a lot of friends there. It's quite difficult to get to. Uh, I, the first time I ever tried to get there, I got halfway there. It took about four hours in a bus, and then there was a landslide, and you just had to turn around, so there was no way through. Mm. Um, so it's, it's quite a, it's like a you know journey to the centre of the earth to get to this place. And then when you get there, it's in this stunning valley, absolutely beautiful valley, with a river called the Penderisco, which kind of winds through the valley like a children's storybook picture. Um, and there at the end of it, you've got Orao, which is traditionally, well, uh, for many, many years, it was the most violent place in Colombia. And of course, mm. Rigoberto's father uh, was murdered when he was 14 years old. He'd only just started cycling because his father was looking for something that would give him a bit of um, something to do and some discipline and some shape to occupy him, keep him off the streets, keep him safe. Um, and, and then weeks after he started cycling, his father was murdered uh, by a paramilitary group um, for no apparent reason apart from the fact that like Rigoberto he was very charismatic, everyone loved him and these guerrilla groups we're going back a few years of course this was 2001 mm. um, um, but you know these, these guerrilla groups it's the same in Colombia as it is in lots of places uh, in Africa and, uh, and this is human history you know you've got two armies facing off and how do they control the population? Well, they terrorise them. Mm. And if if ordinary people are more frightened of one group than of the other group, then that one group they they're the winners. So, and I think that they put a bullet in Rigoberto's and his father's name was Rigoberto too. They put they, they shot him dead for no other reason that they could see that this was a man who was clearly well liked, well loved. And that one bullet would cause a huge amount of terror. Mm. And, and, and it's an awful story. And he's such a kind of radiant guy. And it almost makes, uh, well, uh, I think it gives us hope, in a sense, that such terrible violence can produce someone who's as positive and smiling and moves forward the way that Rigoberto does. So, yeah, it's a terrible story. I should also add, Andy, that I went to the village and, and my hope was, when I was writing the book, to solve the crime. Mm. And it was only when I was there talking to people, interviewing a lot of people and trying to, and researching, that it came to me that this is not my crime to solve, mm. you know? Mm. And that actually, the closer you might get to some kind of resolution, um, could itself create danger. Yeah. Um, and R Rigoberto doesn't speak much about the death of his father for completely no. understandable reasons. But what I did do was um, I spoke to Oscar Vargas, who was third in the 1989 uh, tour of Spain. And that was the first grand tour that had ever seen two Colombians on the uh, podium because Pedro de Vado won it, Fabio Parra was second, Oscar Vargas was third. And Oscar comes from the same village as Rigoberto Uran, Urao, and his father was murdered too Oof. by the FARC. And so he told me his story and his attitude and what it did to him. And where Rigoberto doesn't speak about it, it was the first time Oscar Vargas had ever spoken about it to a journalist. Mm. And he opened up and told me. And so the one story sheds light on the other. Um, I mean, and so, yeah, it's, it's harrowing, but I mean, it gives you an idea of what these guys have been through. Is it a common thread throughout most of the Colombian cyclists that they have this kind of backstory that's unique, completely different than anything that a European or American or Australian can relate to? 
Uh, I think that's absolutely right. I think you've nailed it. And and that doesn't necessarily mean violence. Mm. Okay. So uh, the people who are from uh, Antioquia, so which is Medellin, the city and the surrounding countryside, like uh, Rigoberto Uran, like the Enau cousins, um, uh, Sergio Enau, for instance, he has imprinted on his brain. He went out training when he was 14 years old, up a country road on a mountain bike, and um, then came across the body of a neighbor who'd been dragged out of the home in their underwear and shot through the head. And he said, I can shot in the face. And he said, I still have that imprinted in my, in my memory. Mm. Okay. So there's that going on. But on the other hand, um, I, I asked exactly your question to Miguel Angel Lopez, who's from a different part of Colombia called uh, Boyacá, which is much higher altitude. And I said to him, do you, you know, when you're riding with, you know, Americans and Europeans and Australians, do you feel that you're different from them? And it, there was no hesitation. He said, oh, yes. Because when we were kids, he grew up on a farm. A lot of these riders are from farmsteads. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, th th there was no, I never lay on the bed uh, playing video games. You know, we were up and out and working. And he was, you know, from the age of six, seven, eight, he was, you know, moving uh, cows around, livestock around, putting posts in the in the in in the fields, setting up fences, picking onions, and so on. And he said something very interesting to me. Um, he said, um, w "When you're a kid and you grow up on a on a, a kind of pretty unsophisticated small holding, like I did, and like most of the other Colombian riders did, you get used to." Um, working and you get used to, you know, banging your thumb with a hammer or cutting your arm with a machete or chafing and blisters because, you know, maybe you've got trodden on by a cow and that sort of stuff. And you get used to the everyday pain. And that's a great training for cycling because mm -hmm. when you go down on a bike and, you know, poor Miguel Angel, poor Superman, he's been down a few times, um, a few times too many. Mm -hmm. Um you you know that you just get on and carry on. You get up and carry on. And so um, it's, it's as I say, when you look down from that big helicopter shot in all these different colors, and each one is a different rider, in the Colombians' heads, they're picking up their rural, small farming background and um, taking all the patient, observant, you know, observing and and uh, waiting for the crops to grow and putting up with the everyday pain that you have to go through, and that's part of their kind of their culture of of being what is, what what they call campesinos, you know, mm. um, and in many cases campesindios as well, because there's a huge indigenous part uh, to this too, and that kind of connects the Colombians with people like Nielsen Paulus and Tom Danielson who've got indigenous blood and, and, and uh, Kiel Ryan and mm -hmm. with indigenous blood in them as well. So there's another thing going on there as well, which is the the part indigenous riders in the peloton. So there's all sorts going on. Yeah, there's so many different amazing stories. Mm. Um, you know, and, and part of that Uran, Uran generation, of course, with Nairo, I know you're quite close to Nairo. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, what's it been like? It seems like these, these riders have been become superstars. I mean, Uran is almost like Mick Jagger of Colombia, at least looking from yeah. the outside, very charismatic. You know, uh, Nairo is, is like this kind of almost a spiritual political leader, it seems like sometimes. And then it seems Absolutely. like Bernal, yeah. it seems like Egan Bernal almost kind of shies away from that attention. How have they been able to deal with this uh, this attention and uh, the acclaim that comes with their successes, especially Nairo? It seems like he's handled it fairly well. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's different. I, I think the thing about Nairo is that he's a very, very genuine person and he doesn't pretend to be someone he's not. And even though this, this sometimes maybe never quite comes across in English, which is partly why I wanted to write the book, um, He's uh, he's regarded. People listen to him speak, and he he speaks very much in the the rural way from his part of um, the country. And also, you know, let's not you know beat around the bush. He's the the darkest skinned uh, rider ever to appear on the podium of the Tour de France or any of the Grand Tours. And he's you know very very, very aware of his difference in a sense, and very proud of his indigenous. Uh, background is his mother 
is is you've never seen someone who looks more like a whisker indigenous um, mother, um, and he um, people see in Nairo the better part of Colombia. It's kind of rural authenticity, the connection back to a kind of tradition that goes back you know, six, seven, eight, nine thousand years. And, you know, he's a he's a he's a genuine guy. And he's another one. It's interesting the way that we talk about, you know, these young kids from Egan to Bogacha to Remco, Quinn Simmons and, and other youngsters who are incredible, you know, Mark Hirschi, these really young riders are incredibly successful now. You know, N- Nairo too, um, he kind of emerged pretty much fully fledged at the age of about 19 or 20. Mm. And in that first year, there's a story I tell about, in that first year when he was professional with movie star 2012, he was very quiet, wouldn't say a word, this tiny little, very shy Colombian um, kid. Um, but he had an argument with El Sebio Sway because he'd been told at the start of the season to be ready to ride the Giro d'Italia. He wanted to ride the Giro d'Italia. He said he was ready for the Giro d'Italia. And then a week before the Giro started, they told him, I oh, know you're not riding. And he pretty much exploded. And I- I'm persuaded, having, I don't know if you remember the 2012 Vuelta, um, where it, it was kind of between Contador, Purito Rodriguez, and Valverde, mm-hmm. and Naira was Valverde's mountain helper, and he climbed better than any of them. And I'm persuaded that Naira could have finished on the podium in the 2012 uh, Giro d'Italia if he'd been elected. He would have been racing with a team that didn't really have a leader, so he'd have had that freedom. Um, and he's another one who, uh, you know, emerged fully formed at the age of 2021. 20, so part of that kind of, what do we call them, the disruptors, you know, mm-hmm. the, the iconoclasts, you know. Yeah, yeah. It seems like it seems like today every world tour team wants to have a Colombian rider on their roster, and it, and it seems like every agent in Europe is trolling the U twenty three racing leagues in Colombia right now. Um, yeah. The yeah. It, you know what is it that I mean? I've talked to some team managers, and and they'll say that Colombian riders they're just hungrier, they want to win more. It's like, what do you see? In you know, there's a talent there, obviously, but there's also a drive that I think is separate than other other places in in the world right now. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that there's that ambition. It is the national sport, so um, they're producing more riders than elsewhere. And I think what's happened is that um, over the since about 2000, uh, I put very briefly, there are there are economic reasons for this. Colombia signed a series of free trade deals. This has been another dimension, like cycling, of integrating the country into the um, international community. But um, they've kind of destroyed this. You know, there are 11 and a half million small farmers in Colombia. And, um, you know, in, say, 2000, um, a lot of them, for instance, uh, Darwin Atapuma's family, Miguel Angel Lopez's family, uh, there are others, um, they were growing barley for the beer industry, uh, wheat for the, you know, for, for food, potatoes and so on. well colombia no longer produces any commercially tradable barley or wheat a hundred percent that's all gone cheaper imports and so a lot of these families they subsist producing things like um paper uh, um potatoes and coffee but uh, your sale price is is not much more than your production price i mean they're, they're right on the breadline. so they're producing kids and the fathers and mothers are looking at their kids and going, well, look, there isn't a living in what we've done all our lives. Mm. And, and these young, strong farming kids are going, well, I, 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 look at Nara Quintana. Why don't I try that? Mm. And that's where they're coming from. And so, strangely, in the 1950s, a lot of the champions of the Tour of Colombia were from rural, from urban families or from rural families who moved to the city. But now more and more, a lot of these kids are from the deep countryside. And, you know, a generation ago, the eldest son of a campesino family, he had work to do, and he certainly wouldn't have time to go out and train on his bike for three or four hours a day. But now, you know, a father sees his son's interested in cycling, and he encourages him. You know, mm. and so uh, you know, Colombia should be producing fifty or sixty 
professional cyclists a year. And now um, there are, for the first time, there are three or four different talent detection and development schemes that are slowly, it's all been interrupted, of course, by COVID, that are, that are, that are get, getting underway. Wow. And so I think we're just going to see more and more Colombians only. Uh, before I let you go, Matt, what about what's your view on uh, Egan Bernal? You know, he came up, obviously a phenomenal rider, first uh, Colombian Tour de France winner. It seems like that, uh, you know, he kind of rode in on uh, Ineos, great talent. Uh, you know, in, now we're seeing him with a little bit of some problems. We're reading about how uh, there's a difference in his leg length. He has some problems with his back. Um, and also hearing stories about, you know, maybe he's not as comfortable in the celebrity skin as some of the other writers. What do you see right now happening with Aegon? And do you expect him to get back to his very best uh, this year or next? Yeah, it was interesting to see him last week in the Tour de la Provence. And um, did you see that the kind of stacking he had underneath um, the, the cleat on his right shoe? Um, so there clearly is, you know, action's been taken there. Um, I hope it's difficult, isn't it, with these tiny guys with no meat on him. And, of course, the last thing he wants is muscle. You know, if it was you and me, you or me, we'd be told to go to the gym and build up muscle mass. You know, mm. well, a cyclist, especially a climber, doesn't want muscle mass. Um, yeah, you've got to assume that with Ineos, he's in the best possible hands. He's got the best help he uses. Cycling's fundamentally about the engine, and we know he's got a great engine. Um, and I did like when he attacked uh, on, on the mountain stage up to Chalet Renard. Um, Souza had gone, and to kind of interrupt Alaphilippe's rhythm, he made, uh, uh, Egan made this acceleration and then Alaphilippe went back up to him and they kind of played a little bit of cat and mouse and it reminded me of the Tour de uh, Romandie in 2018 when uh, Nairo and uh, Roglic, it, it was all, almost like watching two track sprinters on the, except on a, on, on a mountain <laughs> stage, yeah. almost coming to a, do you remember that? Almost coming to a standing mm. Uh, stop and 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 then um, to almost doing track stands and then accelerating again and I think he just loves racing and and being in that scenario and I, I think you saw a little bit of joy from him there that mm. you haven't seen for a while and I think that that's very, it's very important it's important to him to be joyful when he's riding and it's very difficult for any of us when when we're in pain so. I think that's a really good sign. And I think what all of us want to know, uh, of course, is if you take Egan and Tade Pogacar and Remco Evenepoel and you put them all at 100% of their form in the Tour de France, who wins? Hmm. And hopefully we'll see that over the, over the coming three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, fifteen, twenty years. You know? <laughs> so that's what we're looking forward to. And I think there were good signs there. Indeed, it's a positive sign for Bernal. Well, thanks, Matt, for the time. We'll let you go. Uh, again, uh, his new book, Colombia es Pasión, The Generation of the Racing Cyclists Who Changed Their Nation and the Tour de France. Great read. I'm digging into it right now. So thanks, Matt, for joining us, and uh, uh, hopefully we'll catch up with you again later this season. Wonderful. Look forward to seeing you on the road, Andy. All right. Thanks, Matt. <laughs>